Okay, Boker Tov, good morning. It's great to be back and great to be studying the Parsha together once again after a long hiatus. But hopefully we'll be back consistently uh, going forward. So we begin, as we uh, like to do, by reviewing the entire Parsha, getting a sense of context to where we're at. Page 998 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. We'll uh, just do a quick overview of the Parsha and then delve into the specific verses that I want to take a look at together today. So the Parsha begins where last week's Parsha left off. And it is a continuation of Moshe Rabbeinu's soliloquy. Moshe is delivering one of the greatest monologues in the history of humankind. These Jewish people stand on the brink of entering the Holy Land. It's the final days of Moshe's life. Their quintessential leader, the individual who would cement himself as the leader of the Jewish people in perpetuity, stands there and tells them his final message. Where you went right, where you went wrong, what you have to be aware of, what you need to be cognizant of, and, uh, and gives them divrei bracha. This is the best I can do. Fascinatingly, his divrei bracha contained great criticism. Last week's Parsha Ekev, which we could have studied it together, is perhaps the harshest Parsha in the entire Torah. Moshe holds nothing back in criticizing and condemning the people, and I would say it culminates with an expression that's bothered me over the entire last couple of weeks. Um, Right? In last week's Pasha, we're not going to focus on it, but I just had to get it off my chest. Moshe turns to the people and he says, You have been rebellious. You have been miserable. You've been difficult since the time I knew you. Mamrim, you've been rebels. From the day I met you. That's, that's pretty harsh. Could have said, You're wonderful people who've acted rebelliously. Right, that's what we're taught to tell our children. Oh, you're such a good child who's acting miserably. Why are you behaving so badly? Not you're a bad child, you're a good child behaving badly. So what's pshat? What does it mean? Moshe turns and he says, You've been miserable since the day I've known you. Anyway, good luck in Israel. I'll see you on the other side. So that's last week's parsha. It continues this week's parsha, and Moshe Rabbeinu continues his monologue, his soliloquy, his messages to the Jewish people. Sefer Dvarim is the ultimate Musr book. We have wonderful Musr's farm that we study. We're entering the month of Elul, a time characterized by personal growth, character growth, and it's traditional to study Mesil Sisharim, Shari Tshuva, Orichos Tzadikim, classic works of Musr of uh, character growth, or more contemporary works, Ali Shor, Revolbi, and others. But you really can go back to the first Musr Sefer. The very first Musr Sefer is Sefer Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy. Moshe delivers this unbelievable message. He holds nothing back. So here we begin. Page 998. Moshe continues his conversation by telling the people, Behold, behold, I place before you today blessing and curse. Bracha ukla. We've spoken about this at length in the past. We're not going to take the time to review it now. Other than to suggest, say, I want to point out a Sforno. The Sforno says something very, very fascinating on these words. It says the Sforno, Habitu You know what Moshe's message is to the people? Most people live with mediocrity. The world exists on mediocrity. It's good enough. It is what it is. I do the best I can. It's a happy medium. Says Moshe to the people, that shouldn't be good enough for you. For the Jewish people, we have two extremes. There is no middle ground. It's either blessing or it's curse. It's an incredible comment of the Svarno. Reminds me of the Tanya. The thesis of the Balatanya of the book Tanya is that there is no happy medium. I always thought in life that everything that we do and everything with which we interact is either good, it's bad, or there's a third category, it's neutral. It's neither good nor bad. Food I eat or things I watch or things I hear. It's neither good nor bad. Chesed, staka, learning Torah, categorically good. Lashon hara, gossip, and... Uh, Stealing money and uh, being selfish, categorically bad. And most things in life, neutral. It's neutral. It's neither here nor there. It's just neutral. But says the Balatanya, it's not true. Everything we do, there's no third category. Everything we do is either sitra achra, it's either the klipas noga, in the language of the Balatanya. Everything that we do is either the other side, the dark side, or it's the good side. We're either 
the good side or it's a product of the dark side. So the food I eat is either giving me more energy to lead a more productive life or it's clogging my arteries and it's a it's poor judgment and it's unhealthy. And what I watch on TV is either going to stimulate my thinking and help me grow as a person and justifies the time I've allocated to doing it or it's narishkeit and stupidity and ridiculousness and a waste of time. And the conversations I have either draw me closer to others and make me think and expand my mind and my horizons and improve the world or they're a waste of time and they're gossip and they're nothingness. Everything I do, there's no middle category, says the Balatanya. So I thought of that when I saw this Sforno. There's no middle category, says the Sforno. Every choice we make in every moment of every day will yield either blessing or it's a curse. Now the blessing, I understand. I choose to go to the gym, it's a blessing, I'm healthier. I choose to learn Torah, I've grown, it's a blessing. I've cho- chosen to give in stucca, I've chosen to do chesed, I've chosen... Where's the klala? The answer is the klala may not be as, as uh, easily pronounced. pronounced or perceptible. The, the, the klala, the, blood, the curse, may not be as, okay, so I'll eat a cheese dinish. Is it a curse? Maybe not one, maybe not today, but over time. Okay, so I wasted my time. I watched some ridiculous reality TV show and it was nothing and added nothing to my life and I took nothing from it and an hour of my life that I can never recover is gone. Is it a curse? So again, if I need an hour to relax and to rejuvenate and to restore, then it's a blessing. I don't know that's ever with a reality TV show, but then it's a blessing. But if I've wasted time, it's a curse. You may not perceive it as such at first, but it is. So that's Moshe Rabbeinu's message. As you go into the land and as you live your life, know that in life every choice we make either yields blessing or curse. There is no middle category. There is no happy medium. There's so much to say on this. I once gave a sermon, in fact, one of my favorite sermons. I know it's okay to say about yourself that you had a favorite Please. sermon. It's a favorite. It's not, I don't know, I'm not saying it was good. I just say it was my favorite. But I said, homiletically, Perhaps what Moshe was saying is, I place before you the concept of Hayom, today, now, the moment. Bracha uklala. The concept of Hayom, of now, of today, can lead to one of two conclusions. Some people understand their mortality. Some people confront how finite life is, and they therefore take advantage of every moment. Then it's a bracha, then it's a blessing. And others say, live life, drink and be merry, for tomorrow you may be gone. And then it's a klola, then it's a curse. So says Moshe, I place before you the concept of hayom, of today, of the moment, of the now. And that concept of the here and now can either be a blessing or a curse. The choice is up to you. There's a lot more to say about that, but I will draw your attention. As you read the rest of the book of Dvarim, Deuteronomy, you will find that Moshe uses that word hayom more than any other. Today, I place before you today, that which I tell you today, listen to me today, if you'll hearken my words today. Hayom, 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 hayom. Not coincidentally, we are in a period of hayom, hayom, hayom. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur will be saying hayom. And that is a very critical concept for motivation. To re- when is it that we're unmotivated? When is it that we're complacent and lackadaisical and lazy? When we think we have all the time in the world. I'll start my diet next week. I'll get to that project next year. I'll give when I retire, when I have more time. That leads us to abandon that which is really important. It's when we focus on Hayom, not that we become paralyzed by how mortal we are and today may be our last day, but we understand that every day and every moment is so precious. In fact, I would argue that's the theme of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a dress rehearsal for death. It's not so uplifting. But we don't eat and we don't drink. Men wear a kittel. That's literally what we're buried in. It's a, literally, it's a literal dress rehearsal for death. Everything about Yom Kippur imitates death. Why? Because sometimes it's only when we focus on death that we begin to live life. It's only we understand how mortal we are and how fleeting life is that we can commit and promise and pledge to begin to live life. So that's Hayom. Again, much more to say, but I want to get to the specific Please speak Sukkim. about Hayom that since he knows he's going to die within a day or two or whatever. That's a great point, Zev. So, could, could it be more compelling, a more passionate because reference to Hayom than Moshe, who knows his Hayoms are numbered, his days are numbered. Yeah. I speak about Hayom. I'm a young guy. I just look old. I have a lot more gray in my beard that's been introduced, <laughs> introduced in the last few weeks. But I look old. But I'm a young guy, so I think uh, I give a speech about Hayom. But okay, I, you know, I got a long life to live. Mir Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu knows 
He's got the date on the calendar. He knows how many days and hours he has left. When he talks about Hayom, the value of every moment, boy, does he know? boy, does he have credibility when he's talking about that. Yeah, he's almost there. Blessing and curse. That's how the parsha begins. The next thing is the sanctity of the land of Israel. Perakid Beis, chapter 12, talks about when we enter the land. Also a theme that comes over and over. God keeps telling them, reminding them, this is the land. You're going to begin to form a society, a civilization. You're going to fulfill the promise and the potential to be a light onto the nations in the land that God has promised you. To inherit, and when you do, when you get into that land, your first goal, your first job, is to destroy all of the idolatry, to purge the land of its foreign influence. Something that until today we have failed to do. Shaul, King Shaul, failed to do it. His successors failed to do it, and until today we suffer from the plague of foreign values and foreign influences and foreign concerns that we do not make our calculations this is not a political statement please don't even read it as such but in Israel until today we and I mean there's three billion plus reasons why we're concerned with what other countries think but um, but Israel until today does not calibrate its compass based on God's will alone but is concerned with the influences and the opinions of the nations of the world and that's what Moshe says when you get into the land the first thing you do is break down those idols take away those influences and if not you will suffer Torah then warns us about about uh, Bamos private altars right until there was a it, it, in and out when there was a Mishkan but when there was a base Amikdash permanently we were forbidden to have private altars you were not allowed to have an altar in your backyard I'm not referring to Weber Weber is that what they're called grills I'm talking uh, grills although that the heter busted you only got to eat meat when there was a centralized place to offer Korbanos it used to be that eating meat was directly correlated with sacrifices. You ate the meat of sacrifices. The idea that we divided the two and you're allowed to eat meat at will, independent of sacrifices, only came only came later. So we're forbidden from having private altars. That's a very significant commandment. Because what that commandment then creates is community. It creates centralized authority. When everyone can have their own private altar, that's like everybody setting up shop for a synagogue in their living room. And if everybody makes a synagogue in their living room, you never have a beautiful shul. You don't have a beautiful community. You don't have people who come together. And community is one of the core values of the Jewish people. It's one of the one of the pillars upon which we exist and our continuity our continuity uh, relies. So when you have private altars, everyone could do what they want in their backyard. You have no reason to go together. You have no reason to have priests to whom you turn and who lead you. So it creates a sense of community. It creates a centralized authority. Very important. Permission to eat redeemed offerings is the next uh, page 1002. That When you go to the place, what is the place? Yerushalayim. Beis HaMikdash. Never, not given by name explicitly, but referenced countless times. Whatever your heart desires, you're now allowed to eat meat. As I referenced before, Rakadam lo sochelu. You can't drink the blood pour it out on the ground like water. And in this parak in chapter 12, there are many, many, many references. We just read one. Then you see it again. Over and over, we've studied in years past. Over and over, at least three, four, five references. You cannot drink the blood. First of all, why does the Torah need to tell me so many countless times I can't drink the blood? Has anybody here ever been tempted by blood? Has anyone ever wanted to kick back and have a nice ice-cold glass of blood? Right? You're, you're, you're repulsed by that thought. So why? So Rashi, of course, notes that and he says, if the Torah needs to warn us so many times about something that we're not even tempted by, so imagine that which we are tempted by, how cautious and vigilant we need to be. But it's more than that. Blood here does not only mean blood as in the flowing liquid, but blood is symbolic. As the Torah itself says, Ki adam hu hanafesh. Blood is the, is the soul. This enters the important conversation about the definition of death. Is it cardiovascular? Is it brain activity? Cardiovascular is in the flow of blood. Because the Torah says, Ki adam hu hanafesh. The presence of independent autonomous blood flow, the heart beating on its own, according to some, is the definition of life. According to others, that's not the definition of life. 
brain activity is the definition of life. That's where life is is contained. But it finds its root here, ki adam hu hanafesh, the symbolism, the significance of of blood. The Torah continues. I'm just saying they, that's why they say our steak has no taste because we purged it all blood. Right, and that's of course this is the obligation of malicha, salting yeah. the meat to remove all of the blood. But how about people seriously? I sit at a table with firm people. Yeah. They, they, oh, they love it with a little bit of the. Marrow? No, that's okay. Once it's salted, whatever comes out afterwards is not considered to be the blood. Correct. No, I like my steak rare. I tell the waiter, I want, I want it still moving on the plate. When it comes to me, I want it still moving. My kids do as well. But that's different. That's not blood which is actually flowing. Yeah, once the salting process is complete, that's no longer. That's no longer. We don't. You know, when I was in Smicha, Malicha was part of the Smicha curriculum. Salting. Today I understand that Yeshiva University it's no longer part of the Samicha curriculum because most rabbis don't get a question about salting. I once got a question about salting. Someone's liver, they left it on the counter, it wasn't training, it wasn't, you know, I had to uh, tap into my vast knowledge of Hilchus Malicha. But, um, but today, you know, I, I imagine you yet remember mothers or grandmothers, chickens, salting, draining the blood. When I was in eighth grade, we had a shochet come to my school, my elementary school in Paramus, New Jersey, the Academy, and he uh, demonstrated shechita in front of us. And I'll never forget watching that chicken run around the parking lot without its head, giving meaning to the expression like a chicken without a head. It's called the pircus, the, the um, you know, it's, it's, it's dead, but the nerve endings are still moving. And, and then afterwards, every one of us got a chicken, and we were taught how to salt it, and we all salted it. And I didn't eat chicken for like two years after that. <laughs> I literally, I literally didn't eat chicken for two years after that. So in any case, that's the, the, uh, the blood here. And then it continues. Shemur v'shamat, the bottom of 1004. Listen and hear. Which is, a, by the way, a phrase that gets repeated over and over. Shemur v'shamata. If you're listening, listen here. Why the redundancy? The Orachayim says, Shemur Okay, whatever. Yeah, the whole explanation. We're, we're going to... Leave it for now. But Laman Yitav Lachul Vanecha Acharecha, so it'll be good for you. Kita Aseh Hatovah Yashar Beinei Hashem Alokecha. This is another expression that you find a number of times in the Book of Devarim. Moshe reminding the people that ultimately, you know what your job is. Kita Aseh Hatovah Yashar Beinei Hashem. Do that which is right, and that which is just, and that which is good in the eyes of Hashem. In fact, I would describe that maybe this is a mandate that we have forgotten. That you know what? Maybe I'll speak about the Shabbos. That if I had to summarize, you know what the sum total of Judaism is. Ask yourself what God would do. Ask yourself, what, God, what does God want you to do? What does God want from you? Or put differently, what will bring nachas ruach to Hashem? What will give God joy? What gives God nachas? What does God want you to do? And the Ramban elsewhere, earlier in Sefer Tvarim says, the Ramban, says the Ramban, this is a mitzvah. To, when, when, when there's an action, a decision we have to make that's not regulated by halacha, because halacha can't anticipate every single situation that could come up with in life. It can't. Halacha can't imagine and regulate every situation. So what happens when we have a decision to make that there's no reference in the Shulchan Aruch, right? A decision to make that there's no explicit law. What should you do? Says the Ramban. That's this mitzvah. Ask yourself, what does God want from you? Every decision, say, what would God want me to do? What does God want me to do right now? What would God want me to say? What would God want me to act? How would God want me to act? Always ask yourself, what would God want me to do? Now, that leads to the next concept, which is, how could you possibly know what God wants you to do? So you know what the best way to know what God wants you to do? Is get to know God. So if I have an obligation to always ask myself, what does God want me to do? But I can't guess what God would want me to do until I get to know God. And how do I get to know God? I study His Torah. When I study His Torah, I get to know Him, and it helps me be able to anticipate and guess... You know, people who've loved, lost a parent when they're young, and they say, what would my father do? So they knew their father. And that's what helps them be able to come to that conclusion. What would my father's advice be right now? What would he tell me? Because they knew the decisions the father made in the past. They knew his attitude towards other things. And they put it together to try to anticipate what he would want me to do. Okay, we're running out of time. We haven't even gotten to what I wanted to study yet. Uh, false prophet Torah warns us what happens when someone gets up and presents himself as a false prophet we have had this in our history countless times perhaps most most uh, destructively Shabtai Tzvi the Shabtai Tzvi episode and its aftermath but we've had many false prophets Rabbi Akiva himself was Bar Kochva was taken by by a false prophet 
So he was susceptible and vulnerable, and certainly we are, and many others. We have that somebody who tries to seduce or tries to uh, tries to uh, influence others negatively with uh, foreign concepts and values. I'm sorry? Incitement to idol worship. Incitement to idol worship. Mm-hmm. And then we have the Ir uh, Nidachas, an entire city that is involved in idolatry. Then we have the Torah's promise. We studied this, I think, last year on page 1010. We are children to God. We shall not become into, into factions. And the only time the Torah uses a reference to Segula. You know, it's very popular now. Skulas, wear a red bendel and don't do this and do this. Skulas. Skula is another word for witchcraft. Just right? The Torah uses the word skula. And you know when the Torah uses the word skula? It says, be an amsegula. And what is an amsegula? Follow Hashem's Torah and mitzvahs. Lead a meaningful, purposeful life. Lead a values-driven life. And then you will have blessing. You think wearing a red bendel, wear a red string around your wrist, it's going to protect. Ridiculousness. Darchei ha'amori. It's uh, idolatry. This skula, only in today's times are we looking for shortcuts and superstitions. Skula never meant superstition. The Torah's definition of skula means to be a treasured people of Hashem. To be an amsegula. To be an amsegula doesn't mean a people subscribing to superstitions. That's what the Egyptians did. We left Egypt and we were supposed to leave the superstitions behind. To be an amsegula means to be loyal to Hashem. Hold that thought, hold that thought. So then we went into the laws of kashras. Next, second place where the Torah details what, what are the criteria for kosher animal, criteria for kosher fish, criteria for kosher bird, or sheni. We have the laws of Shemitah, the remission of loans. Loans are canceled in Shemitah in the sabbatical seventh year. We talk about taking care of one which, someone which is poor. That's the part we're going to focus on. And the parsha ends with the Shalash Regalim, the three pilgrim festivals. Okay? Which brings us to the part that I want to study together. Yes. That's a long discussion. Not for now. Okay. Chapter 15. What I want to discuss is chapter 15, verse 7. And this is a new Parsha. When I use the term Parsha, I've shared this with you many, many times. When I use the term Parsha, I don't mean Parsha as in the way we divide the Torah portions of the week. The Torah understands different parshios by where there is a break in the text. So if you look in the art scroll, for example, on page 1016, you see that where we're going to begin, chapter 15, verse 7, there's a break in the text. Psuchos and stumos, sometimes it's a break and it continues in the same line, sometimes there's a break and it continues only on the next line. Okay, you ready? Everybody buckled in? Key. Chapter 15, verse 7. This is the Torah discussion of tzedakah. If there's a destitute person, a poor person, an indigent person living among you, any of your brothers, any of your brothers, if among your brothers there's somebody poor struggling, of your cities, in the land that God gives you, you cannot allow your heart to harden. You cannot close your hand from your brother who is impoverished. You're not allowed. It's fascinating imagery, right? Don't allow your heart to harden and don't close your hand. It's been observed by many. When a baby is born, what position are their hands in? Their fists are clenched. And when a person dies, what position are their hands in? They're open. Why is that? When you're born, you want to accumulate and amass as much as you can for yourself. And when you die, you realize you can't take it with you. So so why wait till we die for our hands to be in an open position? Says the Torah. Don't close your fist. Don't close your hand. Open up your hand now. Don't wait until it's too late. Rashi says, here the Torah is giving us the hierarchy. The one who needs the most should get first. It says from one of your brothers. Why doesn't it just say from your brother? Text. Again, our, parsh, our class does not give uh, vartlach and uh, fancy themes. I have a very simple, modest goal. We go through the verses and we try to ask questions and we try to see what the commentators say. So, if it weren't so late, I would try to incite you to ask the questions. But should have asked, it should say, Kiyeh Bechavyon, it should say Kiyeh Evyon. 
if there's a poor person, me'achecha, among your brothers, but it doesn't. It says ki'e becha, which we'll have to get to. What does the word becha add? If there is among you, me'achad, from one of your brothers. Why doesn't it just say from your brothers? So Rashi tells us, why does it say from one of your brothers? Because let's say a person's parents are divorced and they have a half-brother from the father and a half-brother from the mother and they both need staka. Who comes first? The half-brother from the father. That's the hierarchy. That's the law. She'arecha, from your city. Why does it say, if there's a poor person from one of your brothers, from your city, from your land, so Rashi tells us this is the hierarchy. Sharacha means ircha A law in the laws of charity is that the poor, the impoverished of your city come before the poor of other cities. A very important law. When they come knocking on our doors to collect money, legitimate people from other communities who've fallen on hard times. We have to make sure that our Tom Cheshabbos program and Chesed program and scholarship fund and shul and mikvah and kashras and day schools and federation that we have to make sure that they are sound. First, that's the priority in giving. Of Shechter feels and many other poskim that not only Aniyah Yircha Kodman, the poor of your city come first, refers not only to individuals but refers to institutions and organizations. That your shul, your local day schools come before every kolal that knocks on your door, every envelope that comes in the mail. That's the priority in giving. The priority in giving is first local. Um, continuing, Rashi says, If you don't give him, the end is you're going to be a brother of poverty, which we'll see more of in a, in a moment. Says the Ibn Ezra, Don't allow your heart to harden. So this, Ibn Ezra reinterprets the words. The simple understanding is, Lo is Don't allow your heart to harden. He understands it as, That the obligation of giving staka is not simply to hand a check. It's not simply to give a public's card. It's not simply to give uh, cash, but it's to speak to the heart of the poor person. The Gemara says in Baba Basra, that a person who gives money to the poor person is blessed with a certain amount of blessings, but the person who's mafaisa bedvarim, but an individual who lifts their spirits, who takes a moment to listen to their troubles, who cares about their plight, that individual is blessed with twice as many blessings. So you see the idea is that the obligation of staka is not simply to give money, but is to make the other person feel connected. You see, being poor leaves a person feeling very alone, very alone, very isolated. And the degree to which we can invite them, include them, is a tremendous source of solace and comfort, and that's our obligation, much more than, much more than just, giving them, uh, just giving them money. Good. Says the Orachayim HaKadosh. We ask the question, Becha. Omra Becha. Why does it say, Ki Becha Evyon? If there is among you a poor person, why doesn't it just say, if there's a poor person? Perhaps this is a reference to the Gemara in Baba Basra. Why does God make poor people in the world? Why does God make poor people? If God really loves all of His children, if God loves His creation, why does He make poor people? So here, if you open up the source sheet I gave you, source number four is that Gemara in Baba Basra, more at length. Says the Gemara in Baba Basra, let's read through it quickly. For the sake of time, let's go through the, the uh, English. It was taught in a that a mayor was wont to say, The litigant has an argument. If your God is truly a lover of the poor, for what reason does He not sustain them? In other words, the Gemara says, if somebody wants to come to the rabbi, somebody wants to scream at God, I don't understand God. We describe you in our prayers that you love the poor and the destitute, you never forget the orphan and the widow. Well, what'd you create them for? If you love your children, if you really love the poor person... I know, I know a rabbi in New York tells the story that he once was flying in and he needed his son to come pick him up at the airport. And his son said to him, Dad, I love you so much. I have such respect. I just, I can't. I'm busy. I can't pick you up. It's yeah, but I need you. I don't have any other ride. I really, Dad, I love you. I said, I love you so much. I, words can't describe how much I love you. It's just that I, I can't. So he said to his son, 
I want you to love me less and pick me up at the airport. <laughs> love me a little less and do what I'm asking you to do. So if a person turns to God and says, you know what, love the poor person less and give them money. Love them less and make them not poor. What does it mean if God loves them so much? So God, so the answer is, what you should tell them, says the Gemara, is God does not cause the poor to suffer because they're wicked. He impoverishes them so that we may be saved through them by giving them charity and be saved from the judgment of Gehenna. And in fact, the Gemara continues, this was a conversation between the great rabbi Rabbi Akiva and Ternus Rufus, the Roman, the wicked general. So Ternus Rufus turned to Rabbi Akiva and said, if your God's a lover of the poor, why are they poor? If he loves them so much, love them less and give them money. So Amalawi said, So Ternus Rufus said to him, on the contrary, this giving of charity is what condemns you to be punished in Gehenna. Ternus Rufus says, if God wants them to be poor, who are you to try to reverse God's plan? God wants them to be poor and you're taking them out of their poverty? That's why you're going to go to Gehenna. And Ternus Rufus explained, if a king confines a servant to prison and ordered that no one feed him or give him drink and one person sneaks them food and drink when the king hears is he not going to be angry at that man? And you Jews are called You're called slaves of God. So if God puts one of his people in prison and says don't feed him i.e. he's poor why are you ignoring God's will? So listen to what Rabbi Akiva answered him. He said your metaphor is wrong. Your parallel is inaccurate. It's analogous to the case of a human king who's angry at his son and puts his son in prison and orders that no one feed or give him drink. And one man went and gave food and drink to his son. When the king hears, does he not send the man a gift? Is he not grateful that despite the action he had to take against his son that someone else came in? And, and it says, Our parsha that we are the children of God. Now this is not easy. I don't, we don't have the time to develop this at length because while this is very comforting and reassuring to those who are in the position to give tzedakah, that the poor person is suffering what they're suffering so that we have the opportunity, it's not very comforting to the poor person who is an instrument of God and is suffering uh, you know, to help those rich people earn virtue. It's not very comforting to them. So it takes a lot more conversation. This needs to be elaborated on, which we don't have the time right now. But I wanted to share with you, that's what the Orachayim is suggesting. When the Pasuk says, Ki becha, when there is among you, he's saying, it's almost read it instead of Becha, Biglalcha. It's because of you. In other words, if there's a poor person in your vicinity, one can never think, you know, that poor person, it's their problem. I've worked hard and I have my money. That poor person's suffering from poverty. It's their problem. One has to realize if they're poor, it's only to give us an opportunity to help them. If God created poverty, it was only so that we can grow through the opportunity to give to them. In fact, this is the source of the entire concept of staka. Many commentators, we, we studied this on Shabbos Shuva 2011. With four million sources, we went through this concept of staka. So if you remember, we talked about the very name, the very word staka. The root of the word staka is... Tzedek. Right, so if you think about the word staka, meaning tzedek, it's really everything but. What does tzedek mean? Justice. Is giving my money to you justice? I worked hard, I earned my money. You, for whatever reason, are struggling. How is it justice? Staka shouldn't be called staka, it should be called chesed. It's everything but tzedek, it's everything but just. So what did we explain? What did we explain? <laughs> Our Mepharshim explained it is exactly tzedakah. If one realizes that when we have money, we are essentially given it by God to watch over it. It's God's money, not ours. And we are given it to be the... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Custodians. We are the custodians of God's money and we are instructed to spend it wisely. So it's more the equivalent of if my parent left me money but understood implicitly or explicitly that the money they left me, bequeathed to me, is to help take care of my siblings. When I then share of that money to sustain my siblings, did I do an act of kindness or an act of justice? It's an act of justice. There's nothing kind about it. That's what the money's for. 
That's why I inherited it. That's why they entrusted it to me, that I take care of my siblings. So says God, if you are fortunate and blessed to be in a position that you have money, it's because I've bequeathed it to you to take care of your siblings, my other children. And when you take a piece of your money to help them, you're not doing something kind. You're not doing something generous. You're doing something just. You're doing something correct. You're doing something which is actually an act of justice. So kia becha, becha means because of you. And that's what, again, many of the Ma'aral, unfortunately they all explain, that's what said that Staka comes from the word tzedek, because it actually is an act of tzedek. And it's among the most important acts of, of, of tzedek that there is. The tour writes, Ma'od, ma'od, One has to be especially careful when it comes to tzedaka. The Rambam formulates it, Rambam says, One should be more vigilant giving tzedaka than any other mitzvah. The Gemara Baba Basra, school of Staka connected Kola Mitzvos. Staka is as great, it's opposite all other mitzvos. Staka is among the greatest things that we can do. Because how could you claim to love God and not take care of his children? How could you claim to love your parent and allow your sibling to live destitute? And therefore, caring about God's children is a prerequisite for caring about for caring about God. And that's what the Shulchan Aruch writes. You can never become poor. This is the one area in all of Jewish life where we are allowed to test God. God says, give staka and you'll never suffer as a result. I promise you, you'll never go hungry because you gave staka. That's God's promise to us. And He says, you know what? Test me. Go ahead. Bring it on. Anyone who is, shows compassion, anyone who is sensitive to the plight and the needs of the poor, God will be sensitive to them. Why? Because, let me ask you a question. If I give you money to invest for me, and you give me a good return, am I not going to give you good money? More money? So when God gives us money, if we give Him a good return by taking care of His children, is He not going to give us more? We've proven ourselves to be great custodians, to be wise investors. And that is the promise of no less than Shulchan Aruch itself. The, uh, the Torah continues, right back to our parsha. Me'achar achicha. The Orachayim continues, perish. Lo tachshov biroso evyon pachos. You know why the emphasis is he's one of your brothers? Because never think when you see him poor, he's inferior to me. He's less than me. He's lowly. I'm successful. I've worked hard. I'm ambitious. I'm achieved. I'm rich. And you know what? I'm going to hold my nose high while I write you that check and judge you. I'm greater than you. He's one of the best among your brothers. And there's no evidence from the fact that he's struggling financially that he's any less than you. Never sit in judgment. Never think he's less than a brother. He's absolutely your brother. It's a beautiful Ma'aral. Ma'aral writes, The word staka is comprised of letters that are found right next to each other in the Hebrew alphabet. Tzedakah, the tzadi and the kuf go right next to each other, and the dalad and the hay go right next to each other. Ki Yisrael heim achim betoladash heim uma achas yesh lam av echad vod kiblu Torah achas bar Sinai. Lefichach yesh osios b'milas tzaka shmur azeh ki roi lasit tzaka mishu achiv shumin zera avos imkain yesh lam av echad v'gam achicha b'Torah. So the Mara writes, the letters of the word tzaka are brothers. Why? Because you give tzaka to your brother. You recognize that you're not doing some noble favor. This is your brother to whom you owe because you share one father. And you can't claim to love your father if you're not sharing with your brother. Okay, let's keep going. We are now way behind. Pasoach Tiftach, Pasoach Ches. Open up your hand to him. Why the repetition? Pasoach Tiftach. Why the redundancy? The double. Open, open your hand. Rashi says, Even more than once. When the poor person comes back after one month, you give him Tom Shabbos, right? We've got 23 families on Tom Shabbos, $10,000 a month. Boker Tom Synagogue spends to take care of our families. So you can't say after the first month, you were here last month. Good luck to you. 
Pasoach Tiftach. If it takes over and over and over again, then you have to do it over and over and over again. There's a requirement to give him whatever is lacking. Lend him, give him what he is lacking. Rashi says, If you don't want to give a handout, you think that's enabling him to give him a handout, you think you're not helping him, okay, tough guy, don't give a handout, but give him a loan, an interest-free loan. Give him a chance. And what's the obligation to give him? De machsaro. You don't have to make him rich, but you have to provide his needs. You have to provide what he needs. What does it mean, low? Again, if we had more time, I would challenge you to ask these questions. But the Pasuk should say, Give him everything he's missing. Why? That which is missing to him. What is low to him? Look at this fantastic Rashi. Zuisha. You know what one of the greatest acts of stucco we can do is? Shiduchim. Matchmaking. Help a single person find their spouse. Demachsaro means that, you know, a poor person doesn't only mean they don't have money. It means they're missing something. You could have a person with a gazillion dollars, but they have no friends. They're poor. They're missing something. You could have a person with a gazillion dollars, they're desperate to be married and they haven't found their spouse. A person with a gazillion dollars, they're lonely. A person with a gazillion dollars, they have no children. A person with a gazillion dollars, filling in a person needs that which they're missing, that's the mitzvah tzedakah. What an amazing Rashi, right? Asher yachsar lo, zuisha. Somebody who's occupying ourselves with shiduchim, caring about singles and helping them find their mate, is also a form of tzedakah. Someone who needs a job, making a match, business opportunities, someone's trying to sell their house and you find them a buyer, they're not poor, but you found them a buyer, that's an incredible act of tzedakah, of tzedek, of justice, of using your relationships. A very, very beautiful thing. Okay, let's keep going. Now be very, very careful, because a crazy thought's going to enter your heart. And you're going to say, you know what, it's the sixth year of the seven-year cycle. And what happens in the seventh year of the sabbatical year to all loans? The They're all cancelled. Who in their right mind is going to lend money in the sixth year, knowing the loan's about to be cancelled? Your eyes going to look poorly at your brother who's poor. You're not going to want to give him. He's going to call out to God, and your iniquity, your sin, is going to be called into question. You asked about Ayin Hara? This is Ayin Hara. Look at Rashi. You might think it's a mitzvah for the poor person when he doesn't lend to you, the poor person to call out to God, look at the rich man, he won't lend to me. Rashi says it's not a mitzvah for the poor person, but it's a reality, what he's going to do. And when he does it, God says, even if he doesn't call out, God says, I'm going to notice you did the wrong thing. But you know what? When he calls out, I'm quicker to respond. What's Ayin Har, you ask Moshe Leib? If I flaunt that which I have, which induces other people to say, God, why does he have the nice house? Why does he have the Shalom bias? Why does he have the beautiful children? Why does he have the great job, God? He's not worthy. Look at everything he does wrong. The Karalo. Once that person, when a person calls out about us to God, God, as much as Rashi says, God is memaher li para kore. That's Ayin Hara. Ayin Hara is not some superstition. I wear a red bendel, it saves me. The real understanding of Ayin Hara is don't flaunt that which you have in a way which provokes others to call out to God and say, why not me? Why do they have a big home? Why do they have a nice car? Why do they have nachas from their children? Why do they have shalom bias? Why do they have their good health? I'm at the doctor every five minutes and I fight bitterly with my spouse and my kids give me nothing but problems. Why them, God? And that has an impact on God looking at them and that's what we are to avoid. So what do we do instead? Listen to this Pasuk. Pasuk Yid, listen to this. Give the individual poor person. Give that poor person. Surely give them. Don't let your heart feel bad when you give to them, anticipating that a person might feel bad. Because of this, God will bless you in everything you do. If you give generously, don't feel bad. Feel good. There's no 
I'm going to talk about this in, uh, in a few weeks in our Elul series when I talk about the hands, right? Our, our Elul series, if you have the brochure in the lobby, make sure to take the brochure, is being shalim, being whole. Mind, body, soul. So I'm spending one week on the eye. We go every year for an annual physical. We're going to go for an annual spiritual together. And we're going to talk about spiritually our, how we use our eyes, our hands, our heart, our head, and then our soul. So when I talk about the hands, I'm going to talk about this, but there's, there's no better feeling in the world than giving. And we're not teaching it to our children. We're teaching them how good it feels to take. We've got to teach how good it feels to give. How satisfying to write that check, to make that difference, to help that poor person. There's no better feeling. Even if you didn't give, you told someone else to give. If it's because of you, giving was done, you still get an incredible reward. Here a very controversial verse. <coughs> Destitute people will not cease to exist. Because poverty is not going away, says the Torah. It's pretty powerful. Poverty is not going to disappear. It's not going away. Therefore, I'm, I am commanding you, says God. Open your hand and give to your brother, the poor person in your land. What does that mean, poverty is not going away? Says the Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, you know why poverty is not going away? Because sins are not going away. He's quoting a verse from elsewhere. The Rashbam, and he's saying, poverty is not going to go away because people will always deserve to be impoverished. The Ramban takes issue with this. And the Ramban says, in his commentary here, how could you make a promise that poverty is never going to go away as a result of people deserving it? Are you saying that people are never going to keep Torah fully? Are you taking away that possibility? And the Ramban is disturbed by that idea. But the Kliyakar tells us something else. This is incredible. If you take nothing else away from today, remember this, what I'm about to tell you. Hold on. Says the Kliyakar, of Lunchitz, Pasuk Yud. He quotes the Gemara in Shabbos, Daf Kuf Nun Aleph. Let's look at the Gemara together. It's source number five in your handout. Gemara in Shabbos, Kuf Nun Aleph. Rabbi Lazar Kafar Omer. Rabbi Lazar Kafar. Who's Rabbi Lazar Kafar? One of the Tanaim, one of the, medieval, one of the uh, commentaries from the first, second century. Where did he live? In the north of Israel. If you visit Sipori today, and you go to the Talmudic Museum in Sipori, they found the headstone. What's it called? The lintel? Is that what it's called? Over the entrance to Rabbi Lazar HaKafar's base medrash. And it says Rabbi Lazar HaKafar. It's incredible. Anyway, so Rabbi Lazar HaKafar, A person should always ask for mercy from God regarding the fate of poverty. When you daven every day, say to God, please let my livelihood work out. Please let me never become poor. Shimhu lo ba... Because every family confronts poverty. Listen to this Gemara. Every family will confront poverty. And if it's not you, maybe it's your son. And if it's not your son, in Benoloba, Ben Benoba. Maybe it's a grandchild. Shene'emar. How do you know this? Listen to the Gemara. Our Pasuk. Ki beglal hadavar You shall give to the poor. Why? Beglal. In return for this matter. Tana de Be'er Bishmar. What does it mean? Beglal. Why should you give because of this? Galgal hu shechozer ba'olam. What's a galgal? A wheel. A wheel. Says the Gemara. You know why the Torah uses the language? Ki beglal It's a reference to a galgal. Poverty is a wheel. It operates in cycles. It's a cyclical phenomenon. Never permanently removed. So today you're rich and the other person's poor. You know why you should give them? Because in the next generation it's possible they'll be rich and you'll be poor. You know why you should give? Because your money is borrowed, it's never owned. No matter what you think you're doing to protect your money, CDs, bonds, treasure, whatever you think you're doing, you might be in a position to need. I once uh, met with the head of a soup kitchen who told me that the man who endowed the soup kitchen and named it, it didn't take a number of years until he was eating in the soup kitchen. He had lost everything. And that's why we should give, because it's cyclical. And you never know when it could impact. We never know when it's going to affect us. And if you just go now to source number six, you'll see that in fact, Ramar of Moshe Isilis records this la'alacha. Yitain ha'adam alibo writes the Shachanach Yerodei Simen Reish Mem Zayin. Yitain ha'adam alibo shumavakish kosha parnasa somi akarish baruchu. Never stop asking God for your parnasa. You think you're retired? You're on a fixed income. Nobody can unfix it. It can get unfixed. 
no matter what stage of life you're in, always ask God for Parnassah. Never stop asking God to allow you to be comfortable. Why? Poverty is never disappearing. Not because, like the Rashbam says, it's a result of iniquity. It's a result of economic cycles. Economic cycles create poverty. There will always be poverty. Our job is Davin and never strike us. There's going to be poverty. Davin that it, the Ramah says, you think the poor person is not also davening? He's davening for the cycle to move. He wants to be rich and you to be poor. He's also davening for the cycle to adjust and shift. So never stop davening and realize that the more generous you are to God's children, the more He will leave you in a position to be generous. The more stucker you give and the more you do well with the money He gives you, the more He will continue to give you. The next Gemara, source number 7, is the Gemara Ksubas, De Machzaro. Our Pasuk said, you have to help them according to their needs. Which means the halachic mandate for Tzedakah is, you have to support them according to the lifestyle they were used to. Ah, so you have to renew their membership at the Boca Country Club. No, it doesn't mean you have to give them a rich lifestyle, but it means they're allowed to still have a car, they don't have to take the bus. They're allowed to have a cell phone, you can't tell them it's a luxury, you need only a, a landline. You have to support them according to a reasonable lifestyle. De Machsara, what they are missing, and you cannot leave them continuing to be missing anything. Because it's a galgal, biglal. Biglal is a galgal that repeats and recovers and keeps coming back to the world. That's the Gemara we just looked at. That's what the Kliyakar says, and that's what the Ramah codifies in Shulchan Arach. So we saw that Staka is not something kind and nice and charitable and you're, you deserve a, a great honor because you give it. It's just, it's why give, God gives us money. It's our attitude towards money that makes the difference. And I leave you with that thought as we're entering into the month of Elul and the period of the High Holidays where we say, Tshuva Tfilah U Staka Mavir Nisra That repentance, prayer, and charity remove the evil decree. And we spent a whole Shabbat addressing this, but I understand why prayer is effective. I understand why why uh, repentance is, 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 uh, works. Charity? What am I, bribing my way out? I give money, I can, I can bribe my way? The answer is no. When I give charity, I transform myself. When I give charity, I prove I understand I know what money is all about. Because money is not just a tool and a means to live. Money is a philosophy. The Hebrew word we use for money is damim, which means blood. Money is earned through our sweat and tears and toil. It's our blood. And many people have a greater relationship. You remember the famous, your money or your life? What was that? I'm thinking, I'm thinking. You know that? Yes. Right? So for some people, their money is greater than their life. But that's not the Torah view. When we're willing to share our money, we prove that we understand what money is really all about. And that's why it's called Ma'od Ma'od Tzarech Adam Lizayrba. That's why our rabbis talk about the unique place that it has. Tzedakah, Achicha, the Ma'aral, the letters are right next to each other. Tzedakah has the capacity to redeem us. That's the, uh, the relationship with money with Tzedakah is critically important. And uh, so on and so forth. And that's why the Rambam writes in Mora Nevuchim. Milas Tzedakah nigzeres min tzedak. That it's, it's correct that it be derived from Tzedak because it's nothing short of just to use our money correctly, i.e. to help other people. Have a great Shabbos. Yes. Oh,